let's get this new series started. So today, we're starting off this new series uh, called Fearless Prayer. And as I said last week, whenever I told you guys what was coming up, um, we are going to be looking at some of the most, at least what I consider, so there's definitely a, a certain amount of personal opinion involved here, but what I, I've always considered to be some of the most challenging prayers in the Bible, or some of the most difficult prayers or passages about prayer in the Bible. And what I mean by that, challenging or difficult, is not in the sense of maybe they're hard to understand rationally, or they create some theological questions that we have to work out, uh, you know, maybe in a, in a sense, and we'll see that as we go through the series. Uh, but mostly what I mean is challenging, difficult in terms of challenging my faith. These are the passages as we are going through that I've read, and they've made me stop and say, oh, I don't know if I believe that much, but I want to. I don't know if I pray with that much faith, but I want to. And so what we're doing in this series is we are going right into all those passages. We're going to look at them, and we are going to seek God and looking through them and trying to understand them, work them out in our own prayers uh, so that we might become people who are fearless in our prayers. Uh, and doing so biblically. So the first one we're going to be looking at today is in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. If you have your Bible, you can open up there and follow along. Uh, alternatively, we'll have the passage on the screens here next to me so that you can follow along there. But we'll be in Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 16. All right, so if we're all there and ready to go, I'm going to read this passage in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, sorry, Hebrews chapter 4 and starting in verse 11. It says, "Let us then make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our, to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. There's a man who spent a few years as a physician, a doctor, before answering the call to ministry and then spending uh, three decades after that preaching the Word of God. He lived in the uh, middle to late 1800s into the early 1900s. His name was E.M. Bounds, and in one of his books called The Power of Prayer, he wrote this, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods. But men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. 
my desire for us in planning out this series and the burden on my heart is that we would be a church that seeks to follow the calling that God has placed on us as a church, that we will be a church that seeks to uh, fulfill the vision that God has given to us to uh, be a church that declares the lordship of Christ over every square inch of Acadiana, but that we would not do so in faith in the vision, that we would not do so in faith in our methods or even faith in our sermon series, but that we would do so as people of prayer that we will go out in mission in Acadiana, not as people who just have some ideas that we can share and some arguments that we can make, rather that we would go out as people who know the living God. That we would go out as people and we would persuade minds, that we would call people to repent from their sin, that we would call people to follow the Lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of their life, not because we make a good case, but because they, through us, experience the power of God, the living God that we know, that we know with our minds and that we know in our hearts, that we know experientially. And look, if you guys know me, you know I'm a reader. I read a lot and I'm, there's, there's people who are more heady and there's people who are more heart, hearty, you know, and I tend to be one of those people who's a little bit more heady, right? But here's the thing, as much as we need the mind to love God, we cannot remain there we have to know him in our hearts. We have to know him in experience. And, and while I have experienced God in reading, it does not happen nearly as frequently nor as powerfully as meeting him in prayer, meeting him in worship. And so we don't really need another sermon series as much as we need to pray. And so what this sermon series is about is not just that it would fill you with information, but that it might lead you to pray. I am not just uh, giving you guys some new good ideas, and we'll have some applications, but I'm not interested in just giving you some new tricks. This series is about you doing it. We are attempting to become men and women, like E.M. Bounds wrote about there, men and women of prayer, a church of fearless prayer. So as we follow this and we look at it in Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to look at a couple of things. We're going to look at the one great concern that the author has in this passage, two great gifts that God gives every Christian, and then lastly, three great applications. So one great concern, two great gifts, three great applications. The one great concern that the author has. This passage In Hebrews chapter 4, and in a sense, much of what Hebrews is all about, if you're not familiar, this passage is written to those who want to give up. Have you ever been someone who wants to give up? Maybe in, uh, in, we, we just talked about New Year's resolutions. Maybe you've wanted to give up a resolution before. Why? Not because it's going really well, and not because you're eating healthier and you're uh, losing a little bit of weight and you're having more energy and you're feeling great. And so you say, it'd be a good time to quit. (laughs) No, usually you quit because, you know, you want that cake or, you know, or you're like me and you're starving and you're at Costco and that $2 pizza is good. And so you quit and you eat the $2 pizza, right? Uh, 
you quit whenever things get difficult. Whenever it gets, it gets hard, you've struggled, you've tried to hold on, you have, um, you know, you, you've had a second wind and a third wind, but now you're at your last, and you're ready to quit. You're ready to give up. Have you ever felt that way? You know, I think one of the things that holds us back from really appreciating the Bible for all of its richness and for all of its wisdom is that we usually assume that these people, that the, that the scriptures were originally written to, the, the first audience, right? We assume that because they lived so long ago and in cultures that were vastly different from ours, that that must then mean that they were very, very different from us. They lived in a much different time and in some different cultures, but we got to understand we're still very, very, very much alike. And just as you've gone through times in your life where you want to quit, where you start to struggle and you want to give up, where you start to question, so did they. Whenever you start to experience confusion because of things that you see in the world and oppositions that you face, or you start to become, um, you start to become worn out, burned out in your own struggle with sin, you become depressed in your own inability to defeat the flesh, and you think, why not just lay it all down? Or has it even been authentic to begin with? They felt the same. They wondered the same things, had the same questions, had the same struggles, and they were tempted to quit too. This passage is written to those who want to give up. And so there is one great concern that the author of Hebrews has for his people and that he has for us And it's this, our first point. We must make every effort to hold fast to our confession and persevere to the end. That is the primary concern of this passage. And like I said, of much of the book of Hebrews, if you go and read it again later, there is verse after verse and passage after passage. And even where he goes into these, look, there's some sections that are just, you know, once again, theologically, intellectually large that we could explore for months on end. Right? But even whenever he goes into those sections, it's all to serve the purpose of, so don't give up. So, like, look at all these great things, so hold fast. The writer's one overriding concern is that they should persevere to the end. This is what he's getting after in verse 11, the beginning of what we read today, where he said, let us then make every effort to enter that rest. You see what he's doing? In the portion before this, he is talking about, like I said, he, he goes through these brilliant, deep sections, but then brings it down to, brings it home to this really practical place. And what he did in the section before, you can go read it later in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 4, he's talking about God's Sabbath rest. And he's, he's not necessarily just talking about the seventh day of creation. Now, if you remember the days of creation, right, God created the world, and then day by day, he starts to form the world, right? He starts to make it a place that is inhabitable inhabitable for life, and he creates the world, forms the world, creates creatures, and so on. And then at the end, it says, what did he do? He rested from his works. Now, the meaning of that is this. It's not just setting up a precedent for our Sabbath practice that we ought to have a day of rest as well. It's not just doing that. That's one of the applications. It's not just doing that. And it's not, of course, telling us that God was tired and he needed a break. Right? He is omnipotent. God does not get tired. What is it saying? After creating this garden, 
He wanted to rest in it with his people in a uh, situation of ongoing rest with them. What God had done when he formed the garden is he made a sanctuary. He made a home where him and Adam and Eve and the people would, uh, would live with him in his rest, right? There was no more work to be done other than the cultivation of the garden, but there, was no, um, there were no enemies then to be defeated. There were no threats to, uh, to the, the peace that they were enjoying, but to rest in that. And what the author of Hebrews says is that God's rest did not end with the fall, but that his rest continues and that we have the opportunity to enter into his Sabbath rest. He says that, in other words, what the people of Israel were trying to do throughout the whole Old Testament, when after they had been expelled from the garden because of their sin, what God's plan of salvation and redemption is all about is bringing his people back into his garden rest back into a sanctuary rest. That's what it's all about. And so he says, let us then make every effort to enter into that rest. Because he says, there are people who have given up. There are people who initially wanted to enter into the rest, but then they, they didn't. They turned away. They missed it. He, so what does he say to us? Let us make every effort, every effort to enter into that rest. Once again, he's saying that, to these people because it was difficult to be a Christian for them. In the time and place that they lived in, it was difficult to be a Christian. And so they were tempted to give up, right? Pursuing, making every effort to enter into God's rest because of the oppositions and difficulties of the, the culture they lived in certainly didn't feel like rest. It was a lot of work and effort to enter into. There's places in the world today where it's really difficult to be a Christian, Right? And we, we could name all those different places, and we can think of all those different places and the situations that uh, our brothers and sisters in the kingdom are experiencing around the world. And it's okay for us to admit this, too, that even here in the United States, even here in Lafayette, it's difficult to be a Christian. Now, of course, in different degrees than what some of our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing, but that's not to discount the difficulties that we face, too. It's difficult to be a Christian today. It is going to take some effort. It is going to take some work. In fact, there are many people who are held back from uh, Christianity and who are held back from Jesus because they fear the difficulty that will come with it. They know, they have heard, you know, even if it's not extremely consciously, they know what Christ said, which is that we ought to count the cost before following him. And there are many who have counted that cost and they have said that for them, the math doesn't add up. It will be difficult. It will re require demands on your time. It'll say that there is a, a portion time of the week where you will join with your covenant family. It's going to demand your time. It's going to make demands on your possessions and say that you will steward all your possessions for his glory. And as he tells you that you will not serve them and that you will not use them for your own advancement, but for his. And that he will claim a certain portion that you are to give back to him. That's difficult. Be becoming a Christian is going to mean you're going to have less of your own time. It means you're going to have less of your own money, your energies, your 
uh, the, the things that you decide to give your heart to and to enjoy him. If there were certain sinful pleasures that you, uh, that you wanted to partake in, it will say no to those. And that's not even for us to count in the, the cost of opposition from the world and from the culture, from being ostracized, maybe from certain social groups or maybe at your workplace, for being misunderstood by the world, or maybe, maybe even being outright persecuted. It is hard to be a Christian. It takes effort and work. This author is writing to an audience who feels weak, need, and faint-hearted. And they need some strength. They need some encouragement. And we need the same thing. So what does he say to them? He tells them, make every effort to enter into that rest. And in verse 14, he tells them to hold fast to their confession. To hold fast to their confession. What's the opposite of that, of holding fast? Be dropping it. He's saying, don't drop it. Don't give up. Don't let go. Hold fast instead. Because every Christian will be tempted at some point in life to drop the faith, to drop the confession. If you think you haven't, then you're lying to yourself. Or if you claim that you haven't had that, that moment, you are lying to yourself. John says so in First John. Every Christian will feel this way. So it's important that we encourage one another, friends. We need to be encouraging one another, recognizing that, that we are all weak, that we all have times where we are especially weak, where we have times where we are struggling. So this means that we shouldn't be ashamed of our struggles. We shouldn't be ashamed of our difficulties and think that it disqualifies us or that it makes us abnormal from the church body. Our weaknesses and our difficulties, in fact, make us quite normal. It's something that we all experience and that Christians have been experiencing all the way back to when Hebrews chapter 4 was written. So we shouldn't be ashamed of them and then hide them. Instead, we should open ourselves to encouraging one another. And whenever we open ourselves, for those who are in that moment feeling strong, use your strength to encourage. Use your strength to build up others. Like I said, this is the theme and the concern that the writer has going all the way through the book. You can see it even uh, way forward in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, let us, since we have a, such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Once again, don't give up. Run the race with endurance. And he says, well, how are you going to do that? He says, by laying aside the hindrances and snares that so easily entangle or ensnare us. You know, compare it to a runner. I'm, I'm not a runner. I don't enjoy running. I run very short bursts, and that's it, okay? But if you watch people who are running the Boston Marathon or the New Orleans Marathon or the, uh, the what do they call the one? The Zydeco Marathon here in Lafayette, or even people who go run... 5Ks and 10Ks, they usually don't do so with like, uh, you know, like skiing pants or big bulky jackets on. They usually don't do so with uh, cowboy boots, but they usually do it with, you know, light running shoes. They don't carry all kinds of extra paraphernalia and things that are unnecessary. If you watch these marathoners, they're, usually, they're not carrying anything extra. They've got the lightest possible shoes on. They have the lightest possible clothes on. Why? 
Because if you're going to run the distance, if you're going to endure the race and make it, then you've got to take off all those hindrances. You've got to take off all those things that are going to hold you back, those things that are going to slow you down. What does Hebrews tell us? Take off the hindrances. Remove the snares. In other words, watch out for the sin that is going to wear down your ability to run the race with endurance. So if we're going to run with endurance, and if we are going to remove the hindrances and snares that many of you probably came in here this morning feeling acutely. Some of us came in here way down with hindrances. So how do we get rid of them? How do we run the race with endurance? How do we make every effort and hold fast? Well, God gives us gifts for this task, for the race. There's two great gifts that God gives every Christian so that you will still be running the race. Here's the first one. The first one is the word of God. The first gift that he gives us is his own word, the Bible. In verse uh, 12 and 13, it says, For the word of God is living and effective, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Consider two facts that we learn about in this first gift, the word of God. Two facts we learn about. The first one is about the Bible. It says, for the word of God is living and effective. Other translations say living and active. Is God's word living and active to you? Is God's word living and effective? Where if you read God's word, does it have an effect on you? Do you meet God through it? Does it speak to your heart? Does that double-edged sword come out and penetrate into you? Or whenever you read it, is it ineffective? Does it seem dead? Does it seem pointless and irrelevant? Remember whenever you were the time before you were a Christian. For some of us, that might have been a really, really long time ago. For others of us, it wasn't. But remember the time before you were a Christian and you heard the word of God preached. Or maybe you tried to read the Bible here and there. Was it living and effective back then? It wasn't. You know, as a pastor, I've heard this so many times, this story uh, that people have in their testimony where, you know, they grew up in church and they heard sermons and they were in youth group and they heard Bible lessons and so on. And they say, you know what, but I, but I never heard the gospel until this point. You know, and it, it made sense that day. It clicked that day. Here's the thing. You know, I, I mean, for, for most of us, some of you, you know, maybe you, you went to a place where they were not teaching the, the gospel and not teaching scripture correctly as possible. But you know what? For, for a lot of us, here's the truth. You were hearing the gospel. You were hearing it over and over again. You were hearing the Bible taught to you faithfully. You were hearing it taught to you well. You were hearing it taught to you powerfully, but you had a dead heart. And it made the Bible seem dead and ineffective to you. And for all those who are still outside of Christ. For all those who still do not know God, the Bible is ineffective, and it is dead to them. This is a sign that you are a Christian. If whenever you read the scripture, it is living and active. It is effective. It, it cuts down into your heart, and it convicts you, and you meet God through it. It's a sign that you're a Christian, because the Bible is only living and effective for those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit and who have the Holy Spirit living within us. Um, 
opening our minds to the truth of Scripture. That's why in all those times in the past before you're a Christian, it didn't make sense or it didn't mean anything or it was irrelevant because we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and to work in our hearts to make the preaching of the gospel and the reading of the Bible effective in our hearts. So is it living and active to you? That's a fact about the Bible. It is living and active, but only so for Christians. It also tells us a fact about God in this passage, in this verse. It tells us that before God, we are all exposed to him. These verses, if you have any self-awareness, ought to make you have shivers down your spine. It says, no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Maybe that doesn't bother you. I would say you don't know yourself, or you're unaware, or you're delusional. Let's put it this way. How many of you guys would like for us to take, let's just, we don't have to talk about your lifetime. We don't have to talk about the last year, the last month, last week. Let's just say, let's just, what if we took all the thoughts that went through your head this morning, just this morning, all the thoughts that went through your head this morning, and we put them like on a, uh, you know, we wrote them out on a teleprompter as they were going through your mind, and we had them rolling on these screens behind me. How many of you guys would volunteer to allow us to do that? But before the eyes of God, it says, all are naked and exposed. There is no hiding. There is no covering up. There are no thoughts that are not unexposed to him. It says that he sees it all. He sees more than even we see. Because our sin often blinds and deceives even us. Like I said, some of us might not even be aware enough to realize how sinful we are. Might not even be aware enough to understand how much we have assaulted God's holiness or done injustice to him or even injustice to others around us. We have not even realized the, the ugliness of our arrogance and pride or of our lusts or of our avarice or whatever else. Because sin blinds and deceives even us, but not God. He sees even more than we do. He knows all fully, even deeper than we know, what is going on in our hearts and in our minds. And so, whenever you take these two things together, it says that God's word, the, uh, the word of him who sees all, like a double-edged sword, cuts down into our hearts. It says that God's word is sharp enough to divide even, uh, what does it say? To divide even soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Whenever it talks about sharper than any double-edged sword, and whenever it says penetrating there, uh, the, the Greek word is the same word that we would use for discerning. Dividing, discerning, right? Uh, clarifying. God's word through, the, through him who sees all things, even those which we don't, exposes what in our, is in our hearts so that we might see it as well. And that hurts. It stings. Cuts hurt. The, the cut from a sword, even the cut from a caring doctor, hurts. It stings. But God gives me his word because he sees all, and he gives me his word so that we can diagnose what is wrong within me and so that I can change. 
You know, we tend to not see the sting of conviction as a gift, but God gives it to us because he loves us. Because he sees that which is within us that is ugly, that we don't want to see, that we want to hide, and so on. But he sees it, and it does not break his love. It does not extinguish his passion for us. Instead, he reveals it to us so that it does not remain hidden, so that it can be exposed and dealt with, and so that it can be washed away, so that it can be repented of, because he loves us that greatly. And so the first gift that we receive to run the race and to remove those hindrances is God's word. The second gift that we receive is a great high priest. This is what we read about in verses 14 through 16. He says, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. So let us hold fast. I'm so happy that he says that right after verses 12 through 13, because after reading verses 12 through 13, it's a little discouraging. You know, even wherever you, you hear, hey, the sting of conviction is still a sign of God's love. It's like, okay, that's good to know, but it still stings, <laughs> right? So it's great that he tells us this right after that, because the exposure of our sin, even if we recognize it is still an expression of God's love for us, can frequently strip us of our confidence. It'll, it can strip us of our confidence. It can strip us of our will and motivation. And if it does so, that conviction of sin or revealing of sin within us, then these verses tell us why we ought to have that confidence restored, why we ought to have that will and motivation restored and renewed and strengthened. He said, so after God's word reveals that within us and that sword cuts between soul and spirit, he says, in other words, it's like, but do not fear, because we have a great high priest. So hold fast still. We have a great high priest who, this is what is so great about it, who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. What he says about Jesus, our great high priest, who represents us before God, who through him we are brought to the Father. He says he is a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with us because he has been tempted. He knows our weakness. He knows our temptation. And you know what? He knows it to a degree that even you don't know. Sometimes we might think, well, if Jesus was sinless, how could he understand what I feel? How can you understand what it's like to, to fight and to struggle against the flesh and sin as I do? Because he was without sin. Look, he was pulled down but didn't fall. C.S. Lewis writes about this in Mere Christianity. He says, you know, the person who a, a thunderstorm comes rolling in and the wind blows, right, or, or a hurricane is hurling in from the sea, the wind is roaring and blowing, and you have two people. One of them, the wind comes, and they lay down, flat on the ground. Do they know the power of the wind? Do they know the strength of the wind? No, they don't. But what about the Jim Cantores, <laughs> the ones who, 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 go, who face into the wind, who stand against it? Even as it picks up and it continues and it has more velocity, they still continue standing against it. Who really knows the power of the wind? The one lying down or the one standing against it? 
Who really knows the pull of temptation? People like us who just go with it and get pulled down or our great high priest who was pulled and didn't fall? He really knows. So he understands. But what does that make him like, right? That experience of knowing the temptation of sin and yet not falling, not knowing sin. What does that make him like? What does it mean about his heart? You know, because whenever I think about myself and I I think about people, those kind of experiences can change us in one way or another. Sometimes we go through a heart. You see a person who goes through a deep hardship or trauma, and it usually does one of two things to them. They come out on the other side of that hardship or trauma, cynical. They come out hard. They come out cold. They come out unable to connect with people around them emotionally and certainly sympathetically. You have people, on the other hand, though, who come out of those times softer, They come out of those times more sympathetic because since they have suffered, they know what the suffering person is enduring, and it makes them warm towards that person. Have you seen that in people before? Maybe you've seen it yourself. Similarly with accomplishments. We see people who accomplish great things, and it can do a couple of different things to them. On the one hand, they become very arrogant, right? That's happened to me before. I have a little accomplishment, a little win, and it maybe boosts my ego for a moment. Some people come out of that very arrogant. Once again, they come out very cold, very unable to sympathize with the struggles of others. Some people come out of those great victories and accomplishments humbled because they know the struggle. They remember the pain. They knew how difficult it was. And so though they accomplished and had victory, right, they are sympathetic towards those who are struggling through the same things that they did. They aren't harder. They're they're softer. They're more compassionate. Jesus knows our hardships, and he accomplished a a strength against temptation that we just can't even imagine. So what does that do to him? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. How this ought to draw us to the Savior. He's speaking about these verses. How this ought to draw us to the Savior, that he was made like unto ourselves, that he knows our temptations by a practical experience of them, and though he was without sin. Yet the same sins which are put before us by Satan were also put before him. This does not make Christ less tender, but more so. Anything that is sinful hardens, and as inasmuch as he was without sin, he was without the hardening influence that sin would bring to bear on a man. If I accomplished a half a percent of what Christ accomplished, it would make me arrogant. It would make me boastful and proud. It would make me unapproachable and unsympathetic. But Christ's victory over temptations does not make him, as Spurgeon said, less tender, but more so towards yours and mine. This is why the author of Hebrews says to us, do you feel the sting of conviction? Do not despair. Do not dismay. Instead, hold fast because Christ knows your weakness. And it does not make you offensive towards him. He is tender towards you. 
his knowledge of your weakness, his, what God sees inside of you does not make you ugly and unattractive and unwanted to him, but he wants you. He has grace for us. And so when you bring these two gifts together, what does it do? It presents us with prayer. If this is where you are, with the word of God cutting down to your soul and you feel the sting of that discerning word, but then you're told that there is a great high priest who sympathizes with all of our weaknesses and who brings us before the throne of grace. We bring these two gifts together, and what does the author tell us we should do then? To pray, to go before the God who sits on the throne of grace and bring our sins, bring our confessions, bring all of our needs before him. Three great applications from this passage. The first is this. If these things are true that we read about here, the depth of our sinfulness and the God who sees all, and yet the throne of grace that stands, the Sabbath rest that is open to us, and a great high priest who through him we are brought before that throne into that rest, if these things are true, then I cannot go without a personal relationship with Christ in my life. How does that happen? In prayer. I cannot go without a personal relationship with Christ in my life if these things are true. How many of you guys, whenever you are hanging out with your friends, just completely ignore them if they start talking? You guys ever do that? I'll confess. I may have done it before. <laughs> not proud of it. But, but that's usually, that's not what we ought to do, right? Or, or, or with your spouse. How many of you guys have a really great, healthy marriage that has been built on ignoring each other and talking past each other and, and, and so on, right? Yeah, healthy marriages usually aren't built upon that kind of foundation. Great friendships aren't built upon, you know, going on a road trip together and whenever one guy starts opening up his heart, you turn up the radio. No. Great friendships, healthy marriages are built upon talking to each other. They're built upon opening up to one another in conversation, in speaking, and in listening. How foolish of us if we think that we can have a healthy relationship with God without prayer, without consistent prayer, without ongoing prayer, without frequent prayer, not just confined to our 10-minute devotional, but prayer that, is, that goes on through our days through our meals, through our meetings, through our work, through our rest and our play. How foolish of us if we think we can have a healthy, growing relationship with God if we don't listen to him in his word, if we don't open ourselves up to him whenever we pray. You know how many of you guys have a great friendship that's built upon just you talking and saying everything to the other person but not listening back? We have to learn to listen to God in his word, listen to him whenever we pray, opening our hearts, uh, having space in our prayers for God to speak to us, to listen to him and obey him, listen to him in his word, and to speak to him. You know, this is another one of the reasons that you should be coming to church, that it ought to be a priority for you to be here with the covenant family. Because this is where we are taught and, rem and we are reminded and we remember 
on how to cultivate that relationship with Jesus, and especially how we experience that relationship with Jesus through the relationships that we have in our church community. You know, we're here at the beginning of the year, and we made some jokes about New Year's resolutions and so on. I know that for a lot of us, at the beginning of the new year, we make some resolutions maybe to be at church more consistently. And for a lot of us, it's to read the Bible and to pray more consistently, to get on that reading plan or to have that quiet time. And I think that for most of us, we hold ourselves back from talking about it with one another because we're a little ashamed that we got to start again. We're a little ashamed that in last year's Bible reading plan, we only made it halfway through Leviticus again. Because every time we only make it halfway through Leviticus. <laughs> right, that, that's real. Right? Leviticus is difficult to get through. Don't be ashamed if you have to start again. We serve the God who loves new beginnings. We love the God who loves starting again. We, we, we serve the God who created the day, you know? The God who delights in the sun rising again every day. There's a new start that he built into his world. Sunrises that he built into our world every single day because he loves new starts. So don't be ashamed if you have to start again. Don't be ashamed if you come back next week and say you had to start again even from this week. Because we, we serve the God who loves starting again. The second application we look around at our, this one, this one will be short. We look around at our world and we see that we live in a world, we, in, in a time especially, where we are so aware of our failures, where we are so aware, culturally speaking, of wickedness and of evils and of moral failures and so on. You know, so much of what is being debated in our cultural and political conversations right now are debates over morality. Debates over failures in morality and so on. So we live in a time where we are so incredibly aware of the evils and failures in our society, and yet a time when we are incredibly unaware of a God of love, of a throne of grace, or of a great high priest. So where do we turn for sympathy? Where do we find forgiveness? A society that is built only on exposing the sins of others but has no mechanism for forgiveness, for redemption, that has no appreciation for new starts, like I said before. A society like the one that we live in right now, that has no source of unconditional, life-transforming love as we have in God. In a society like ours, how long can it last? I think we are in the 11th hour. In our society, if we do not have a recovery of the gospel of grace, a renewal brought by the Holy Spirit, and a revival, as we often say, or dare I say, a reformation in our churches, in our homes, and that spreads out into the cities around us. This is why it is so important that we are a church that declares the lordship of Christ over every square inch, not just in our churches, but over all of our society. Because we ought to be a society that soberly looks at our sins and that takes seriously and holds accountable those who have practiced wickedness. We need to understand justice rightly, but we also need to understand forgiveness, redemption. 
and how relationships can be mended and restored through the supernatural power of God's love. The third application. We must practice drawing near to the throne of grace with boldness to bring God our prayers. So many of us have been held back from approaching God's throne with boldness, as it says here. These are passages that we are looking at that have always challenged my faith. And it's the one word in this passage that always made me stop, made me freeze, and challenged me the most. It's, and that word is boldness. Approaching God with boldness. The God who my nakedness is exposed to, he then says a few sentences later, so approach him with boldness. And my prayers have been held back at times because I'm afraid. And I've struggled to figure out how do I approach with boldness? How do we as a church pray to God with boldness for him to fulfill the vision that he has given us? Empower us in the calling that he has called us to, to help us to repent from our sin, to meet our needs that we have. The key is this. You will only be able to approach God in your prayers with boldness to ask for not just his help in pursuing the things of the kingdom, but even to ask for just help with the concerns that are on your mind and heart, the needs that you have. You will only be able to do that whenever you remember this, that you are approaching a throne of grace. We so frequently don't begin our prayers by remembering the context in which we are praying, the sphere, right, the, the atmosphere in which we are praying. We so often think that we are still going before God and that we are approaching him right, in, in, a, in a sphere or context of a little bit of judgment. You know, I, I remember I, I've sinned a lot this week or I had some bad thoughts or, or said some bad things, this or that, and they're weighing heavily on my mind. And, you know, I'm, and I'm forgetting that it's a throne of grace. And so I'm not sure if I'm going to pray or I'm not sure if I can pray with boldness. But we have to remember that we, because of our great high priest, we always go before a God who, that, we, uh, that is sitting on a throne of grace that invites our prayers, that invites through his own word our prayers with boldness. I think we need to be reminded of this. And I, I know we need to close. Do you realize that as a Christian, God will accept you. Remember to that time that you became a Christian, or you know, maybe you don't remember the exact period, but you, were, you, you can remember some times whenever God's grace became so real and so, as we sing, amazing to you. Where you, for the first time, the Holy Spirit broke into your heart and illuminated your mind, and you learned and you believed that God can accept me. Do you remember that? You remember that feeling? You remember that, the, how profound it seemed, how it blew your mind, and how in that moment you knew there's nothing else that I need more than this? Do you remember that time? And you knew just a little bit about your sin. But now you know a lot because God's love has been exposing it to you. You know a lot more about your sin now. Those who don't have the Holy Spirit don't know how deep the root goes 
But we who have been digging it out, who have the help of the Holy Spirit, we know how deep it goes. We know how, how powerful the flesh is, and we know just the holiness of God and how many times we have failed to meet the standard of his holiness. And so now, because you know the depth of your sinfulness that you really didn't know back then, you're discouraged. And so now you know even more than you did back then just how unworthy you are to go before him. And so you're dismayed. You think you cannot pray and that you aren't fit to pray. But guys, do you realize that God accepts you as a Christian too? You think that you cannot pray and you think that you aren't fit to go before the throne boldly. But you know what? These verses are written to those who don't think they're fit to pray. To those who have had that sting cut and exposed their sin but now exposed that we might bring it before the throne. Let us pray. Father, if some of us have become dull to the sting of conviction because we have been running from it, we have been, we have been hiding from it, Lord, we don't want to feel that sting. Let us be surrounded by your steadfast love so we might know that you are like a good doctor who cuts in order to remove the cancer, who cuts in order to remove that which would kill us, which is hurting us, which is holding us from you. Lord, so though it's scary, let us trust you. Let us feel the sting of conviction. Let us feel it fully. Because it is only against the backdrop of this sting that we become so aware of our need for Jesus. So aware of our need for our great high priest. And it becomes so beautiful and amazing once again that you accept me. Yes, even now, when I know my sin so much deeper. When I know it is so much uglier than I ever knew before. Lord, let us remember and be reminded today and just astounded today and excited today that you accept us. And so, Lord, let the joy of this salvation, of full pardon and full acceptance, draw us close to you so that we might approach and pray bold prayers, recognizing that we are not doing so because, because we have had to earn or because we are fit to pray, but because we are going before a throne of grace. We pray this in the name of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen.